listening to the 123 show with me, Noreen Mayer, on this Friday afternoon. And since it's Friday, you know it. It is time for the Agenda Cafe. And I'm really excited to welcome back on the program our wonderful co host, Karen Coe, for this week's Agenda Cafe. How are you doing, Karen? I'm good, Noreen. How are you? Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you, too. Yeah, well, we have uh, an interesting show today, as as you remember, and if listeners were tuned in last week, we talked about sexual harassment and sexual assault, um, mainly discussing incidences that happen in person, face-to-face, very often at the workplace. Today, we're taking a, a different sort of angle, and we're talking about image-based sexual violence, which probably most people know as revenge porn. That's sort of the term that's most commonly used. It's not actually a great term to use, and we'll go into that a little bit more. But we're going to take a look at how serious the problem is in Hong Kong and also what's being done about it. So we're thrilled to have a trio of wonderful guests to to help us explore this topic. Uh, so we're welcoming JC Can and Vince Chan to the program. They are members of the Image-Based Sexual Violence Working Group at the Association Concerning Sexual Violence Against Women, who we commonly know as Rain Lily. Rain Lily is a wonderful NGO. And we're also joined by Peter Redding. And Peter is a senior legal counsel at the Equal Opportunities Commission. So JC, Vince, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Hello. Thank you very much. Yeah, welcome and thanks for inviting. Yeah, well, this is really um, an interesting topic that I think probably is not explored that much. And if we go back to what I said at the beginning, you know, we, we often talk about this as revenge porn. But JC, maybe you can start by telling us why that's not actually a great term to be using. Well, I think, first of all, uh, revenge porn has limited our uh, imagination of like uh, the, the consensual distribution or the threats are out of revenge. But uh, from our observation, the intents that people do these acts are more than just revenge. There were a variety of reasons like, uh, you know, for money or to humiliate the other or to control the other, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not just about revenge. And secondly, because um, the term porn <laughs> makes us to feel like that they are those intimate videos on porn sites, but indeed they are intimate images from, from our perspective. They are a very valuable um, image of the person. It's not a porn. So we think that it's, um, it's not very appropriate. Yeah. Okay. So we now we we are using this term image-based sexual violence. Um, can you give us a, an idea of what what is the range of uh, images, the range of behaviors and activities that comes under the definition of image-based sexual violence? Yeah. Um, perhaps I can add on that. Um, we use the the phrase image-based sexual abuse as a broad and a broad term to cover all forms of behavior that include taking or creating nude or sexual images or videos without consent. This include creating fake or superimposed images uh, of, of superimposing one's face onto uh, other pornographic image and and also on the aspect of sharing nudes or sexual images or video without consent of the person depicted in it. 
and also the behavior of threatening to take, share, create these uh, intimate images or videos uh, without the person consent. So uh, we believe that these behaviors actually violate the survivor's right to sexual autonomy. And they are also very often perpetuated continuously against the survivors uh, to intimidate, to dominate, and also to harass. So uh, we think this behaviors cannot, like JC was just said, they are not uh, uh, a form of behavior that should be allowed to put online. And they're not a form of porn because they shouldn't be fetishized because they actually done great harm to its survivors. Yeah, we are live I mean, this it, afternoon on uh, Facebook, Noreen Mayer on RTHK Radio 3. Uh, I'd like our listeners to perhaps be viewers uh, this afternoon and, and join us there if you possibly can. And you can uh, put your comments and questions directly to our uh, uh, knowledgeable panel this afternoon. Um, I, I want to know a little bit more. How common in this, is this problem in, in Hong Kong? Does it happen a lot? And, and what sorts of images are, are being shared? Could you give us some examples, Vince? Yeah, um, in, ter- in terms of figures, because <laughs> currently we still don't have an advance or like we don't have a very regulated way to define all this behavior. So I think like uh, in government figure, we, they don't really show the magnitude and also the prevalence of this issue. However, in Rainily, in last year, in, 20, uh, in 2020, we have received like uh, 133 cases that involve uh, the variety of elements in image-based sexual violence. And in 2019, we've received uh, 44 cases only. So we see perhaps it's related to the education and publicity work that we've been ongoingly doing. And it, is all, it can also be about how this issue is uh, slowly flowing on top of the water so everyone can see the issues. Did you say 43 cases? 44 in 2019 and 133 in 2020. So you see there's a significant surge in our internal numbers. Yeah, okay. Well, Mm. do you still feel like this is underreported though? Yes, definitely. I mean, um, not only to police, they are underreported. I think many cases that they are coming to us, there's still a lot of cases that are not seeking help to like external uh, organization uh, or social services because first they don't identify this behavior as a form of sexual violence and they don't know where to seek help and they don't know where to uh, seek resources. Uh, and secondly, because we don't have an offence to regulate this issue, so I think it's very hard even when they go to the police. Uh, it's quite often that at the police station and report room, they would be told that they would be, uh, they would be told that they, that is, this is not a criminal offence and they can't handle it for them. Right. So there's actually a very different response they would get from different channels. If it's, if it's not a criminal event, what is it, uh, Peter? Peter Redding from the EOC? Yeah, um, just to add to what um, uh, Vincent Jacey was saying, um, uh, the government uh, estimated in their own consultation on introducing the offences last year that just for the issue of upskirt photography, which is obviously only one type of um, this this sort of offence, um, between 2015 and 2018, they had about 200 cases. Um, so that gives an idea of the problem. Um, and then if you add in all the other forms, which you know, Vince and JC were mentioning, it's obviously going to be a lot higher. And, and as um, has been said, there's always um, an under um, estimation because people won't come forward they, through fear through um, humiliation, through concerns about obviously it becoming public and, and so on. So um, it's, it's actually going to be much higher than uh, 
those those figures. Mm. And what's the current legal framework? I mean, is this a crime? Um, and and what options do victims have right now for some kind of um, you know justice or some kind of um, a re- restitution? Yeah. Um, perhaps if I just explain um, what the position was previously. Um, so. Um, the government was as uh, the police tried to prosecute under um, a crimes ordinance offence, but that involves um, using a device, um, someone else's device, to take photographs or or distribute photographs of people. Um, but in a lot of these situations, it's where people are using, for example, their own mobiles and and so on. And so there was actually a case in 2019 before the court of final appeal, which considered whether that provision in the crimes ordinance could be used. And actually the court said it, it couldn't. So all those cases um, in terms of upskirt photography or, or something similar could no longer be prosecuted under that provision, which is what led the government partially to um, then consult on um, introducing new laws to cover this. Um, uh, but obviously, upskirting is just one aspect. I'm afraid we may have lost the connection there uh, with Peter Redding from the EOC. Uh, this afternoon, uh, we're talking about image-based uh, sexual violence, uh, which is uh, commonly known as revenge porn, which is not really an accurate name for it. Uh, we'll go into uh, more detail uh, about this uh, this afternoon. We are live uh, this afternoon on Facebook, Noreen Mir on RTHK Radio 3, and I think we've established uh, the connection uh, once again. Sorry, Peter, it, it got interrupted a little bit. Um, I think we were onto the bit that you said a new provision uh, came came into place. C- can you sort of uh, tell us a little bit more? Yeah, uh, I was just saying that um, the government was dealing with it previously under a provision in the crimes ordinance for upskirt photography, but um, the Court of Final Appeal decided that uh, that provision couldn't be used because it's only for where you're using someone else's device to, to uh, take or distribute images and um, that's what led to uh, the government consulting on this as a separate new offence as well as related um, types of uh, uh, conduct. Mm. So so are you saying, Peter, that as of today, right now, there is no specific law to deal with with this problem? That's that's correct. They've they've tried to use, the, there are possible other laws, loitering and, and so on, which uh, could be used in some situations, but are not targeted at this particular issue. And um, if you look at other jurisdictions, common law jurisdictions like Hong Kong, such as um, most of the states in Australia, um, UK, uh, in terms of England, Scotland, um, Canada, New Zealand, as well as similar jurisdictions like Singapore, they all have um, specific offences for image-based sexual violence, which is um, why um, Hong Kong also needs um, such laws to specifically target this type of um, serious conduct. Is it a type of indecent assault if somebody takes upskirt photos of you? Can you sort of um, get them under Um, that? I think the the, the problem is uh, they, they haven't been able to use other existing provisions successfully to to, to prosecute, which is why there is a gap in the law. 
Right. Um, they would have used the other provisions if they could. Um, as I said, the, the only provision which was successful previously um, was uh, that one in the Crimes Ordinance, but the courts decided that it actually couldn't be used. Um, so that's 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 the issue. And as I said, in other common law jurisdictions, they've all developed specific offences, um, which is which is most appropriate because this is uh, it's different from indecent assault when you when you, for example, uh, grab someone, someone inappropriately yeah. or. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's it's obviously different because you're taking photographs or videos of someone. And there is legislation. I mean, there is a bill, isn't there? What what do we know about what that bill contains, and is it going to be good enough? Vince, uh, well, perhaps Vince. Uh, yeah, Vince, can you share? I, um, yeah, because I think after the um, the court of final appeal ruling on the not being able to use the dissonance. The, the original offense is called this one is use of computer devices, something like that. Um, after that, I think the government has asked the Law Reform Commission to do a study and then onto the issue, and then they have proposed to uh, criminalize the, the, this range of behavior through voyeurism and also non-consensual uh, photography of intimate images, some sort of along the line like this. Um, but however, I think until they did, the security bureau did a consultation last year, and then uh, it involves uh, more offenses that have been put out. They include non-consensual uh, taking of, of intimate images and also a non-consensual sharing. But however, uh, they have not been able to put in the elements of threats into uh, threatening to distribute these non uh, intimate images. So we think that, um, before they put in that, there's the room of uh, improvement. At this stage, mm. how how soon is this bill going to be, you know, read by Legco and and hopefully yeah. passed? Yeah, um, I think this news is quite sudden too because I think just now today we have received um, some uh, news from other reporters telling us that actually the bill has been put up to Legco for first reading in the coming week. So and the executive bureau has already included uh, the element of threats into it. So we're off still like at the moment trying to look through the document and see what more can be done and hopefully this will like uh get onto the agenda of let's go quick girl yeah so mm. currently what yeah, are, um, sorry go on uh, yeah. i was just going to say um that uh the, the government has informed us that um they they hope to get it passed the bill which which has been suggested that has just been introduced um by uh, July, by by uh, the end of also this term, um, and because they do recognise that it's important, even the gaps in the current laws, to to have these new provisions. Um, yeah, we we only became aware that the the bill has just been published uh, just now before the the uh, the show started. So um, we will um, look at the uh, provisions in detail, and then consider. Um, whether or not uh, they can be further improved based on our uh, submissions to the government uh, just recently. 
I think they knew we would be talking about it this afternoon, so they quickly, you know, they wanted the bill. News for us. Nedjko, oh. this afternoon. Uh, well, we are talking uh, about uh, image-based sexual violence uh, this afternoon on the Agenda Cafe, uh, which is uh, commonly known as revenge porn, which we, we now know that this is not an accurate name for it. Uh, this uh, fetishizes it and is, uh, you know, not really the name that we should be calling it. And, and we are talking about it uh, this afternoon with JC Khan and also Vince Chan, who are both members of the Image-Based Sexual Violence Working Group at the Association Concerned sexual violence against women along with Peter Redding, a senior legal counsel with the EOC the Equal um, Opportunity Welcome back. You're listening to the Agenda Cafe this Friday afternoon with me, Karen Ko, and Noreen Mir on the One Two Three Show. And today we're talking about image-based sexual violence, uh, commonly known as revenge porn. Um, and we are discussing both the legal aspects and the um, the, the consequences for, for victims with JC Chan and Vince, JC Can and Vince Chan from the Image Based Sexual Violence Working Group at the Association Concerning Sexual Violence Against Women and Peter Redding, Senior Legal Counsel at the Equal Opportunities Commission. So before the break, we were talking about the upcoming legislation and what we hope it will include um, and when it will be passed. So JC, maybe you can tell us for now, I mean, up until now, what, what options do victims have to ha- get images taken down first and to punish perpetrators? Well, I think uh, from what I know, um, well, actually, for the victims of survivors whose images got posted on internet, they, they they can report the images or request the websites to take down the images on their own. But um, we know that um, it's a quite a traumatic experience for them to do it on their own. So um, before uh, in the in these two to three years, uh, we are you know searching for you know what NGOs or. Uh, what service organizations are providing this service, but uh, but we barely know, you know, organizations that offer this kind of service. I mean, uh, there are no these kind of uh, um, uh, service provision in Hong Kong right now, and so uh, we are now trying to deliver this service to the victims. Um, if they, they their intimate images got posted online, they could. Um, make the request through us that we uh, demand the website to take down the image on behalf of the victims of fight first. So, um, so now they have the option, you know, to come to us and seek the service. How responsive are those sort of uh, internet pages or internet companies to take it down, you know, if, if you make the request? From the, because we um, do this trial, I mean, the takedown service, um, since January of this year. So as far as we know that uh, we think that some online forums are quite local online forums are quite responsive. But for the uh, pornographic websites, the overseas ones. Yeah. And for some messaging apps such as Telegram, they are not very responsive, uh, especially um, for Telegram that because there are uh, many chat groups where the members were circulating um, some uh, intimate images and many of them were not, many of the taking of these images was not 
with the consent of the people or the distribution. So, um, so we find that these kinds of messaging apps are not very responsive when we do the reporting to them. So at this point, the police can't really uh, help the survivors or help the victims and, and act on their behalf. So the police can't really request for websites to take things down. They have to sort of do it individually by themselves or perhaps come to Rain Lily and, and you know, sort for support. Um, as far as we know that, um, we, we, we barely know that, uh, we don't know that... Um, I mean, we we did we do uh, we did not see any cases where the police would, you know, made a request to the websites or report the images to the website so far, um, and because there were no laws, you know, so it is uh, from their perspective, it is not really an illegal act uh, concerning circulation or distribution of intimate images. So um, they were quite reluctant to prosecute a case, not even to mention to report the images to the website. So, yeah, it's quite frustrating um, for the victims to go through the judicial system right now. Isn't really. it sort of protected in some sort of copyright issue? You know, it's a picture of me. I own the copyright of that picture. And if somebody distributes a picture of me, that's sort of stealing. You know, I, I, don't, I, I haven't given my consent. Is there a way to sort of use that? Well, it's, um, uh, this is a very tricky issue indeed. Uh, as far, uh, because uh, we know that um, if... Uh, uh, the, especially for the images that were not taken with the consent of the people. Um, actually, the persons who depicted in the pictures, say the victim survivors, they are not the author of the image. So, uh, so they do not own the copyright of the uh, Even though images. it's a picture of themselves, it's, they're not the author. Then, then who is the author? No, they're not. The persons who took the images. I see. Okay. For okay. example, for, for, for example, uh, if a boyfriend, if their boyfriend videotaped the sex, but the girl does not know, okay, then the copyright uh, is on the boyfriend's side. I mean, yeah, the the girl does not own the intimate image. So, um, so that's the fifth, the, the the most difficult part for us to do the reporting now because. Um, under the the Hong Kong law right now, that the girl who got videotaped without consent uh, is not the author. So, yeah, what if it was a, consensual? What if the girlfriend, uh, or, or what if the boyfriend, you know, gave a picture of himself to the girl, and it was a gift? You know, he he messages her a picture of himself, and then she shares it and she distributes it. Uh, who's the author of that? Uh, okay, for this scenario where the girl sends her intimate image to uh, to her boyfriend, then the girl is the author. I mean, she owns the copyright. But for, for another scenario, for example, the girl and the boy, they took the image together. Like they, they consensually um, took the image. Uh, it's a bit tricky for us because it depends on who was doing the recording or uh, who was, you know, uh, really the producer of the video. But it's arguable, it's very arguable if the uh, photo was taken with both consents and they, they, they both know that they are videotaking the sex process. So, uh, so it's very case by case, I think. But the uh, trouble is, it's very hard. For the cases where the videos were. Sorry, go on, JC. Yeah, but, but before, um, yeah, I'll just repeat that. Um, 
for the uh, image that was not taken with the consent of the person. Like she does not know she was videotaped at that time. Then um, she is not the author. Yeah. The trouble is, the, the trouble is, it's very hard to prove. You know, if the girlfriend uh, gives a picture of of herself to to the boyfriend, and the boyfriend shares it with one of his friends, and then that friend shares it with one of his friends, and then finally that friend, you know, uploads it. Uh, it's very difficult to then pinpoint the boyfriend down because he shared it. You know, he he shared it nonetheless, but he's not the one who uploaded it onto a website or a discussion forum. So it's very hard to sort of trace back. Um, that the perpetrator, um, because it sort of spreads like wildfire. I mean, how do you go about proving that? And uh, just, just, just on that, Noreen. Um, well, there's there's two points. One is that um, one of the proposed offences, which is the government is going to create, will cover situations where initially you gave consent um, in terms of just sharing an image, for example, with a, a boyfriend, a partner, um, but then you didn't consent for it to be distributed to everyone in the world, for example. Mm. So in in that situation or where you change your mind, um, then it would be unlawful to to distribute. Um, There's also the the issue, which um, obviously I haven't had a chance to look at the the bill yet, but in some other jurisdictions, they make an offence not just for the person who actually distributed it, but also people that possess such images. Um, now, I'm not sure, as I said, whether the bill um, makes such proposals, but that uh, looks at the issue that you're talking about. So there's also the, the idea of possession and, you know, um, that that in itself can also be a problem. The, the trouble and is it's quite difficult to prove. You know, nowadays all our photos are sort of uploaded to a cloud. What if somebody claims that, you know, my, my phone's been hacked. I didn't upload that picture of my girlfriend. I've been hacked. I'm also a victim. And, you know, it's 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 difficult to prove. Yes, Lorraine, yeah. I, I, I do agree that um, this is exactly the, the, the greatest difficulty when the uh, victims go to report their case to police because, you know, uh, it's not only that the photo was circulated within among so many people and you don't know who is exactly uploading. And another problem is when they upload a photo, they do not use their real identity to open an account, right? If you opened yeah. it, if you saw an IG account open, uh, uploaded photo, you don't know who is behind the IG account or Facebook account. And then this is the most common reason that the police rejected the uh, case when the victims go to report to, uh, to the, to the uh, law enforcement team. Like they said that, oh, we can't identify who is really the distributor. I cannot do anything, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, this is the, a very common scenario that victims come across when mm. they try to report the case. They should make so blockchain that, things that, for that, the photos. Yeah, that would discourage people from reporting if they feel like I'm just exposing myself more to this, to having to relive this trauma with no result. I mean, um, Vince, can you share some some stories of, of cases you've actually dealt with in Hong Kong and what the result has been for the victim? 
I think uh, many cases that come to that would come to Rainley are actually a form of uh, uh, involved elements of inter intimate partner abuse. So they are actually uh, ex partner or former uh, intimate partner, and it's very often when they go to the police, uh, they do receive uh, they go to the reports room and then they they tell the story to the. Uh, the, the officer and they would be told that this is actually kind of a dispute between you the couple and this is not actually uh can be regulated currently regulated or actually punishable by any laws and and for cases that can get past this bit and then go to the a cid uh, investigation like most of the cases that where some of the rainy uh, uh frontline worker accompanying have been able to get past the first officer, uh, they have been able to tell their story again uh, to the CID. They would be told that perhaps your story is uh, fit into the criminal intimidation element. Uh, maybe we can handle it that way. But very often after uh, taking the statement at the police station and uh, they the survivor will have to wait for a very long time uh, without any actual progress in their case. Uh, perhaps there's a prolonged investigation period and um, sometimes half years, sometimes one year, and sometimes even longer, and then they don't even actually get any response. Um, so uh, from time to time, we have to uh, ask the police station to see any update in, uh, on behalf of our clients. So we actually see how uh, this prolonged uh, procedure is actually creating even greater trauma to our survivors, uh, to our service user, because how when all these procedures are still going through and these images are still online and the the, the, the link to that uh, threatening video, the video of them uh, intimately are still uh, online. So. We do see that um, without a specific offense, there's no clarity for frontline officers. So they can't identify this behavior as something that they can do uh, right away. And perhaps, and even in a more, even even if the case gets to go to court or even they can go to a more, more high level uh, procedures, then we still see that a survivor's experience is still not very considered. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I guess the other thing is, with the proposed law, is there a proposed penalty? What is it? I mean, you have to have some kind of penalty in order for it to be a deterrent, right? I think it's 25 years, isn't it, yeah. the proposal? Yeah, I think the, the, for, for all of the offences, I think they've proposed that it be five years. Um, and, uh, you know, um, obviously it will depend on the severity. That's, that's uh, you know, maximum penalty. So it depends on the particular the facts and so on. Um, I could sort of add an example of um, the sorts of cases uh, we've had because uh, people might wonder why the Equal Opportunities Commission is, is working on these issues as well. Um, it's essentially because some of these situations, um, not all of them by any means, because it's not always um, a sexual reason, but some of them are forms of uh, sexual harassment. Um, and um, that's why we've looked at these laws, because um, at the moment we are reviewing the protections from sexual harassment, um, which primarily are under the sex discrimination ordinance. Um, but where there are criminal laws, which may have elements of sexual harassment involved. And these 
uh, offences sometimes do. Um, that's why we've um, been making submissions to the government. Um, and, and obviously, um, there is a disproportionate number of women who are the victims of such uh, conduct. Um, but just as an example of a case that we, we dealt with, this is many years ago, back in 1997, um, if anyone can remember that far back, uh, we, uh, we represented a, um, a lady, uh, a woman who was a, a student at a, a university, uh, and she was uh, videoed by a friend uh, in her, her cause of residence in her room. Um, the, the camera was concealed and um, it was recording her undressing. Um, and she, did, she obviously didn't know about it. And this was going on for uh, at least six months. Um, and it's actually one of the first sexual harassment um, cases um, that we brought probably um, to court because um, we represented um, the woman. Um, and uh, because it was a situation of education, that's an area covered by the sex discrimination ordinance, so we could bring a claim of sexual harassment because it was uh, creating a hostile environment, uh, humiliating, which is you know the criteria for uh, sexual harassment. Um, and that was successful. Um, and there was uh, an award of uh, compensation damages for 80,000. Um, but what I would add is that, um, as, as Vince and JC were saying, um, we could bring that case because there was a relationship between the parties in that situation, because it was an, an education relationship. We could do it in relation to an employment relationship. But where a lot of this occurs online and there is no relationship between the parties or it's between people in the streets, um, there is no coverage, as we've talked about, and that's why these criminal laws are even more important because the, the sexual harassment cases, we can only bring one where um, it's uh, in, a, in a relationship covered by the SDO, so employment, education, and so on. Uh, and two, obviously, other situations involving these sorts of offences may not involve sexual harassment. People, as, as JC was saying, may be doing it for many reasons such as just to um, threaten people, blackmail people for money and, and so on. Mm. I mean, you know, last week when we, we did our show about sexual harassment and assault in person, um, we, you know, one of the things that we talked about was the fact that there's still so much stigma in reporting. There's a lot of shame that comes with the person who against whom the offence has been committed. And there's a lot of victim blaming. And and I want to know, do you see the same thing in, in this case uh, of digital sexual violence? Yeah, I, maybe I can, yeah, I can shed some light on it. Uh, well, first of all, apart from the stigmas or the bias that they have towards the victims of survivors, they do not have enough sensitivity in handling, you know, image-based sexual violence cases. What I heard from many frontline workers told me that even, you know, some police asked the victim survivors to show them the photos. For example, I heard a case that um, the case was about threatening that um, her ex-boyfriend threatened to distribute her images online. And then the police, uh, it's a woman, policewoman, asked the girl to show her the photos. But then for that case, the focus should be on the threat itself. 
I mean, the, the focus is on the intimidation in cell, but not the content of the intimate images. So we think that they put a wrong focus, and then um, they still insisted to go, you know, to open the, to, to switch on the phone, and then, um, you know, show them the photos. And the girl was very, very, very scared that the police would reject her case if she did not do so. So finally, that uh, she succumbed to this very unreasonable uh, request to, you know, display her photos in the police station. But it's such a, it's such a frustrating and traumatic experience for the victims to do that because, well, first of all, it's not the focus of the case. Secondly, um, they do not know that this would cause second trauma to the victim survivors because they. They, they already felt very shamed that their photos, um, you know, are in their boyfriend's hand and was used as a tool to be, get to, to, you know, of controlling. And, and then you, 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 you ask them to, you know, record that thing by looking at the photo again and then to, you know, show to the third party. It's, it's, it's never, you know, it's never a good practice. And it, it, um, and it, it, it's not, you know, encourages the victims to report to the case if this is a practice in the, uh, you know, among the uh, law enforcement uh, uh, people. So, but first of all, lack of sensitivity is a very serious problem that we that we have heard, you know, uh, from the victims who report to the report the case. And secondly, yes, victim blaming is also another very serious problem. Uh, for example, they, they blame for the girls for consenting to take these photos. You know, it's such a normal thing, you know, to, for the couple to take intimate images. It's a, it's a way that they show love to each other. It's a way to show intimacy. It's not their fault to take images. But then the perpetrator say their ex-boyfriend use it as a tool to control them after the breaking up, for example. It's the, 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 the blame that we should put is on the, the perpetrator, is on the um, intimidator, not the victim. But then some um, police might, you know, um, uh, ask them or reminded them that, oh, next time you shouldn't take those photos because it will, it will you know, it might end up in this way, so on and so forth, as if they are blaming, you know, the, the, the victims for doing this thing. So, um, Rather than this, the perpetrator sharing those pictures because those pictures were being shared in a loving relationship, not to be used, not intended to be used as a threat for afterwards. And, and given the situation these days with social distancing and COVID, many people are in long distance relationship and they use these sort of intimate pictures to, you know, to, to keep the relationship going romantically. And, you know, sometimes these relationship falls apart and those pictures should not and should never be used as a way to threaten um, things that haven't worked out. I'm, I'm I'm shocked to hear you yeah, know, that sort of lecture. Yeah, we are shocked too. But but it seems that this victim blaming culture is very prominent. Uh, uh, I mean, I mean, very uh, omnipresent in the Hong Kong society. So mm. and and that's why we we put a lot of education to stress that uh, we should not blame the victims, but we should you know blame those who distribute or use the photos to threat the um, the victim. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it is very common these days for people to take intimate photos of themselves and again, you know, share it in a in a trust relationship. Are there, do you have any ideas on, you know, how do you how could you prevent 
um, this kind of behavior from happening. Say, for example, you've shared pictures with someone, your relationship breaks down, you know, how, how would you suggest people approach that fact and say, hey, we took these pictures, but, you know, please don't share them with anyone or destroy them in front of me, delete them in front of me. I mean, what can, what can people do when they know that someone does have their, their intimate photos? Just say well, something, just say something like, hey, I'm going to send you new ones, delete the old ones, make space for the new ones, and then never send them the new ones again. Because <laughs> if they sense you're going to break up with them, they're, they're, I don't know, they might not want to delete them. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, JC. Yeah, I think, I think at first of all, um, first of all, we do not prevent people or deter people from taking intimate images. I mean, it's, it's okay. It's okay if you take images, but you should, you know, like have communications with your partner, like who own the image. How long will each other own the image? How it will be stored? And, and also, uh, will there be password to protect the images, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think these kind of communications is very important amount the couple who are gonna take the intimate images and secondly we also uh, want to uh, um, right now because there are no laws you know in Hong Kong so we we want to remind those who want to take intimate images to know that there were no laws and if there's something happened something bad happened there might be some bad consequences and we, we should all take in bear in mind of these um, you know, uh, these um, negative impacts if, you know, the, the, the photo got distributed and so on. So if you could take those risks, if you could take those costs, then I think it's okay if you take, if, if you, uh, take the intimate images. So, so what we do is get the people informed of the situations in Hong Kong now regarding intimate, Im uh, intimate image abuse. So um, this is one thing. And the second thing is, because you know that... Um, I think the biggest proportion in the society are bystanders. We might not be the victim or we might not be perpetrator, but we are witnessing, uh, witnessing uh, many photos were circulating, were distributing in the online world, like every day, every second. So what we, uh, another very um, uh, uh, important education that we, we, we deliver to the public is, if you see any intimate images that were taken or distributed without people's consent, do not view those images, do not download it, do not like or share those images, because if you're doing, if you're doing so, you are also violating the people's consent, because um, those images were distributed without the people's consent, right? So, uh, well, so this kind of bystander education is also uh, a very, um, key part in our uh, gender equality education concerning intimate image abuse. Yeah. How can yeah, we I think that's sorry, go on, Karen. important. No, I was just saying, I think that's important. And also for, you know, for families of victims to think more about, you know, how this affects the victim. And I, I mean, I think there are in many families, it's like, oh, don't pursue this because you're, it's going to be shameful for us as a family. Have, have you had people say things like that? Maybe Vince, you can address that. Yeah, uh, we have seen actually many cases because of uh, so many of these intimate partner uh, image-based abuse cases actually involve younger teenagers and also perhaps adults. Um, and before, like, if they are going to go to police, they also sometimes will tell their parents beforehand. Um, and after 
disclosing the incident to the parent, the very first response would be like what JC has told us, um, why did you take those picture? And instead of like showing empathy and showing, uh, trying to comfort uh, the survivors. And very often we know so many of these uh, advice, so-called advice are very, come from a good view and they have like good intended because they are caring for um, the survivors themselves. But it's very often they actually cause more harm to uh, them and actually um, it fails to capture the, the trauma that the survivors are already experiencing and that, and also the fact that I'm currently telling you this incident of mine, this experience of mine is a behavior of trust because uh, if I don't have to, actually I don't have to tell anyone if I don't want to, but I'm telling you it's, a, it's actually a very precious element into it. Um, yeah, so we have seen so many cases where uh, when after they told their parents, uh, they have been, uh, in one case that I, I remember. Um, We've got 30 the, seconds left. Sorry, Vince. Uh, Go on. The survivor told uh, her parents and then they tell her that um, you should not be a famous person in your future because, you know, this will get digged up in the future and you should only be, remain a very, very humbly in the rest of your life and i think these are very traumatic words from coming from someone's uh parents especially someone that have experienced uh sexual abuse english based yeah. sexual abuse but for survivors out there and for victims out there they can most certainly uh go to uh, uh the association uh, concerning sexual violence and uh report that to their takedown assistance and they'll be able to support you meanwhile thank you very much indeed uh, to vince to jc and to peter for joining us thank you karen for joining us for this week's agenda Cafe. And we'll return uh, next week with more chat.